here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today we won't be having the authors as guests on the podcast today, Carly and Cece are going to be looking at four different query letters. Each of them has been directed to them personally. Right, Carly, why don't you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I am a huge fan of the podcast and have learned so much from your generous and insightful commentary on the queries. While listening to the most recent episode, I was thrilled to discover that Cece and Carly find, quote, anything to do with cults and communes and communities endlessly fascinating, end quote. 
because in these stories, quote, the stakes are naturally high and everyone is pushed to their psychological edge, end quote. Wild City is an 80,000 word work of book club fiction. It is set a decade after the iconic 1968 Summer of Love when San Francisco is seething with danger and upheaval. 14-year-old Hannah Stern's life seems untouched by the crumbling city. She is more focused on her absent mother and her shallow friends. But after a new girl with odd manners and dress comes to school and Hannah refuses to join the I Hate Angela Smith Club, she is a cast out herself. Forced into a fragile alliance, Hannah and Angela dare each other to venture farther into the seamy world of San Francisco after dark and are drawn into a quest that ends in juvenile detention and damages their friendship. Lost and lonely, Hannah turns to her favorite teacher for guidance, but their deepening connection further sows the seeds of her undue. He introduces her to the Peace Temple, a community that provides the feeling of belonging that she seeks, as well as the opportunity to reconnect with Angela. When the charismatic leader, Reverend JJ, invites some of his disciples to join him in Eden, a remote commune in British Columbia, both Hannah and Angela must decide whether to reconcile with their parents or to give up on the past and follow him. Ultimately, it will become clear that Eden is no paradise, but a desperate road trip to discover the truth may come too late. Wild City, which is loosely based on the real history of Jonestown and the People's Temple, will be of interest to fans of The Girls and My Brilliant Friend. I'm a professor of X at the University of Toronto and the author of four nonfiction books, including X, which won two international prizes. I studied fiction writing at Williams College and the University of Toronto School of Writers. Thank you for considering my submission. Best wishes, X. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right. So what did you think of that query letter? Overall, it's very well structured. I mean, the personalization is amazing. Obviously, they listen to the podcast. We mentioned cults and communes. You know, they got that right in there. Um, but I just want to remind people that obviously you're personalizing it for us for the podcast, but you do this for every single query. So, um, you know, you did go, you know, not above and beyond. Obviously, this is very well done, I would say. Um, but, you know, we need to do this equally with with every pitch you're going to do. So this is called book club fiction. So I, I find this interesting because because these these are teen characters. So it's not that it can't be book club fiction, but immediately I'm like, oh, is it more like coming of age? And I just have a lot of questions about that. So I think the most important thing is pulling up these comps from the bottom and putting them at the top with this book club fiction. So we actually, that kind of frames our entire understanding of, of the project that, that we hear about in the following paragraphs. So I would just make that really clear right from the beginning. We just really, if it's going to be for adults, it needs to be very clear that it's for adults. One thing I'm not clear about is whether this is a single POV. Um, it's not that you have to kind of say in every single query letter, multi-POV, single POV, but I, I do like, I do like to know. So I would appreciate knowing. And then the next thing is there's this line that says, but after a new girl with odd manners and dress comes to school and Hannah refuses to join the I Hate Angela Smith Club, she is cast out herself. So it's not really clear that Angela is the new girl because it says just a new girl and then it's the Angela Smith Club, but we know she's Hannah. So um, I would just make it really clear that Angela is the new girl. Just rephrase this just to make that a teeny bit more clear. I love that they start venturing after dark during the CD underbelly of San Francisco. I think that's just so cinematic and wonderful and totally um, in line with the comp, the girls, which is just a phenomenal book. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. And then we get into two paragraphs where there's a bit of a like three degrees of separation or four degrees of separation thing going on. So we have turns to a teacher for guidance, introduces to the peace temple, connects with Angela, meets with the reverend, and then they're on their way to British Columbia. So 
I don't know if we can make this a little bit more smooth, but it seemed like, I don't know, it just seemed like you had to introduce us to somebody who introduces us to somebody, right? And this is like kind of pattern just didn't really feel like the flow was there for me. So I would just try to make this a little bit smoother because if this teacher character isn't that important, then do we need to mention them? Or is the Reverend JJ all that important, right? So just focusing on like, what is the most important thing about getting them from being teen girls in San Francisco to getting into this cult situation. So let's just streamline that as as fast as possible. Uh, Another thing I'm confused about is the age range here. So we say 14 year olds, so they get into some trouble, they go to juvie, are they in juvie for a while? Are they not? Like, when are they out? So are they 18, you know, when they're on their way to the cult and commune situation, right? So I'm just not really clear on how much time is passing. I think I'd like to be a little bit more clear on that. Also, if they're going to cross the border, yeah, I don't know. I just a little bit confused on, again, the rules are going to be lax in, in the 60s about crossing the border. But, you know, teen girls, do they have a passport? Like, again, the logistics of them being 14 and trying to make it from San Francisco to British Columbia are a little bit confusing to me. But I'm just kind of picking at things here because I do think this is really, really interesting, fascinating. You know, you clearly have some plot here. You have some really interesting characters. So overall, I think it's really strong. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Just to say that cults are so much fun. And whenever I see one in a query letter, and I know Carly's the same, right? Like our eyes immediately pop and we are a degree more interested just with that word alone. So great job. And I think the comment about the age was the one that most resonated with me. I also wanted to know exactly how old they were going to be when they went on the journey because 14 is quite young, which is fine if that's how old they are. Then I didn't know how much time had spent. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. All right, Carly, can you give us a bit of an overview of the pages before you dive into your critique of them? So we start with a timestamp, San Francisco, 1978. So great timestamp. Love this. So we start with our two teen characters. They are about to get into a teen debate situation at school. So they're in an auditorium. We're having Angela debating with our Hannah character. Um, And then they go through kind of the setup of the debate. They pick their question. The teacher picks their question. The teacher picks their question. And they're off to the races. So Hannah feels very confident that she's going to win. And then Angela just really comes out of nowhere with an amazing uh, analysis. And uh, and she wins the debate. And then we go back in time a little bit to understand. And then we get to the moment where we find out that some of the girls are starting this I Hate Angela club and they ask Hannah to join. And then that's the exact moment that Angela walks in. um, And then we know that Hannah doesn't join the club. So even though they're kind of antagonists um, in this opening scene, very kind of dramatic debate club situation, they they end up having a little bit of affection for each other or at least understanding. So that's our our opening pages. Okay. And uh, what was was your take on them? So I'm really bouncing my my brain around trying to think about whether this is in fact for adults or not, because this voice felt very YA to me, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, YA is a wonderful category. I just mean, you know, in terms of positioning it and and trying to figure out where exactly we're going with this. Um, And this is one of the things we're going to talk a lot um, at the retreat about because my expertise in terms of trying to figure out exactly where books are, are placed in the market is something that I feel really strongly about. So we'll definitely break this down more in the retreat. But in terms of this specific example, I don't know if it's the case that the author wants it to be more book club fiction, or I just don't know why maybe they're avoiding the YA term, or the book is going to go in a different direction later on that is very clearly adult when these characters age into kind of an 18-year-old category or something like that. So I'm just a little bit confused about, number one, kind of the objective of the author 
and number two, what the kind of range and growth in terms of the characters are. So that's kind of my my critique here. I mean, I really I really love the tension in terms of, you know, these two characters fighting it out in terms of this debate scene. The only thing I found, and I'm not sure if it was a typo or what it was exactly, but the teacher is, one of them is named Mr. X. And I don't know if it's because... One, um, this person is trying to mask their anonymity in terms of, you know, coming on the podcast and they didn't want to, you know, whatever the name was, they didn't want to have it in there. Number two, they haven't decided on the character's name yet, so they're leaving it as Mr. X until they decide. But I would just say, you know, if you are querying widely, figure out who this character's name is if you haven't yet and just make sure you don't query with with Mr. X. But overall, I think it's I think it's well done. But in terms of an agent, you know, requesting this and and me putting my business hat on, I would have a lot of trouble thinking about what the next steps are for this, because if I don't have a clear vision in terms of whether this is YA or whether this is adults, you know, that's problematic to me. And if I'm excited about this project, I would contact the author and, and have conversations with them about this and figure it out. But sometimes I am very busy and I, I can't do that because I get lots of submissions. So this one might fall through the cracks for me, unfortunately, just because I'm just not quite clear on that. Do you think, Carly, that in this kind of instance, they should have a line as to why they view it as book club rather than YA? I know that's not something that we often suggest that they do in a query letter, but if it's something that the agent's going to be wondering about, perhaps it's worth just putting in a line there. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think in the query letter, bumping up those comps would be really helpful. And and I I totally agree. I think there's an opportunity there, right? Like Wild City is an 80,000 word work of book club fiction for fans of The Girls and My Brilliant Friends. Similarly to these novels, having teen characters, it's written in an upmarket way or something like that. Like figure out a way to weave in the comps and weave in the objectives because I definitely have some questions. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, why don't you read us your query letter? Let's do it. Dear Ms. Lyra, I am seeking representation for my novel, On the Inside, a psychological thriller complete at 82,000 words. Exploring all the different ways that a misogynistic environment can hurt a teenage girl, from a broken heart to homicide, On the Inside blends the fast-paced, character-driven style of Lucy Foley with the delicious insider details of Curtis Sittenfeld. Think the guest list meets prep. I'm a big fan of that shit no one tells you about writing podcast and have learned a lot from your webinars and posts. I am contacting you about my novel because your wish list mentions of a novel that takes place in a boarding school and stories with a feminist angle. Thank you in advance for considering my work. It is the summer of 2003 and Ellison Thompson, a smart, cynical young woman entering her final year at the Green Lake School, a prestigious boarding school she attends on a scholarship. On a warm July night, she attends a party held on an island at the cottage of a classmate. In the early morning hours, Allison's best friend enters the upper level of the boathouse and discovers the body of a local girl, Sarah, laying dead on the floor. Following the death, everyone in town believes it is a tragic accident. Only when Allison returns to school in the fall, she starts to suspect someone in her inner circle may have had something to do with Sarah's death and that others might be helping him. Allison enlists her closest girlfriends at the school to help bring Sarah justice by working from the inside to discover the truth about what happened that night. In doing so, Allison must face the harsh reality of the people she has chosen to surround herself with and how her complacency may have enabled their cruelty. I am a former boarding school kid, recovering lawyer, and mom to my daughter, Josephine, and fur baby, Ralphie. We live in the small beach town of Coburg, Ontario. 
I spend my days conducting workplace investigations into allegations of harassment and discrimination. This is my debut novel. My previous works include many confidential, heavily redacted investigative reports and some admittedly dry legal blog posts training materials focused on labor and employment-related matters. I have pasted the first five pages of the novel below for your review. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Emily. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. So what was your take on that query letter? Okay, so I... First things first, first paragraph. I really like the line exploring all the different ways that a misogynistic environment can hurt a teenage girl, but there's a but statement. I would have also loved to see something else about how she responds. This is a matter of taste. This is not me saying query letters must have this. For my taste as an agent, I also want to see the, not necessarily the fighting back because I don't want to frame it as a fight, but I want to see the response. I want to see the moment of agency, right? Like I just don't want it to be things that are happening to her. So that's something that that I would maybe talk to the author about. Loved, loved, loved the comps because I am the world's biggest Curtis Sittenfeld fan. Like it's it's embarrassing how much I like her work. I love that the author here gave us title, word count, genre comps. So this is great. In terms of the plot paragraph, um, right away, I want to say that I love smart and cynical protagonists. They're the best. So I love the way she framed this. I was confused about... How the, the, the murder, um, potential murder, right? Like the death of Sarah and then the investigation that's going to follow is, is, is tied to our protagonist's life. And what, is it, what exactly is at stake? And I'm, I don't want to sound like a jerk here because the girl dying is obviously, obviously there's a lot at stake because finding the truth about how someone died and if someone hurt her is a big deal. But this is a book. This is a novel, right? So we have to be realistic about what our audience, our readership expects. Um, And this is something we're going to talk about in the retreat. Um, One of the panels I'm offering is called Putting the Hook in Your Book. A lot of the times people think that, oh, my hook is murder. So I have a hook. It's all good. But no, because your hook has to be original. And there are tons of stories out there about murderers and who killed this person. So the major dramatic question can't be who killed Sarah. The major dramatic question has to be tied to the protagonist. So in the very best stories um, where someone is investigating a killing or a death, I should say, you will see that there is always something at stake in their lives. Either they're being falsely accused and they have to find out who actually did it so that they can save their own names or to prove the innocence of someone they love. And then there's a whole story behind that that's usually messy and complicated. Or there's something about their career if they're like law enforcement and they're investigating someone. Um, and then they, they maybe they have like a rival who's trying to, to figure the case out before they do. And there's like corruption and competition. I don't know. The point is readers expect a pressure cooker situation with a lot going on, a lot of stakes, a lot of conflict, not just an inciting incident to propel the whole story forward. And in this paragraph, all I see is the inciting incident. And then I see heart. I don't see hook. I see in doing so, she must face the harsh reality of the people she has chosen to surround herself with, how her complacency uh, may have enabled her cruelty. That's all heart. A heart of a story is very important. A story needs a heart, but a story also needs a hook. So I think the hook here needs to be fleshed out. And then in conclusion, to wrap up, wrap this up, I want to say that the fur baby, Ralphie, I love fur baby Ralphie. So thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. Okay, people shouldn't include pictures of their pets with their query letters. Um, Now we're going off on a tangent. Carly, was there anything you wanted to add to that? There was just one thing, um, technically, uh, and I do talk about this on social media a lot. One of my little itty, itty bitty pet peeves that doesn't really matter, but I like to talk about is 
rounding your word count. So they have 82,451. What an odd number, right? That doesn't give you any room to make a couple edits before you send it out on submission or tweak or there. And we don't care, right? So just tell us 82,000, bingo, bango, bongo, done. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. All right, Cece, could you give us an overview of the pages and your take on them? Yes, let's do it. So we have chapter one, The Townie, July 13, 2003. So great job with the timestamp. Um, our protagonist, Allison, is working as a server in a restaurant. A table of entitled wealthy teenagers comes in and Tanya, that's Allison's co-worker, says, oh, that's a table for you. Because Allison might not be an entitled teenager herself, but she does go to the same school as them. And so her co-workers assume that she knows how to you know, speak their language. So we watch Allison wait on the table. Most of them are really awful and rude. Um, she remains unfazed throughout, though. As she puts it, she's Teflon when it comes to working and dealing with these people. So a few pages in, we see Allison strike a deal with Tanya. Tanya will finish the job, like she'll finish serving the table. But then Tanya gets to keep the whole tip. This isn't great for Allison, but she takes the deal because she's super eager to go to the party and see Matt. The party is also full of entitled rich kids. But as Allison puts it, these are her entitled rich kids, meaning they're her friends. When she arrives at the party, we get a description of Matt's cottage. Matt is wealthy. And we very briefly meet Carly, whose wrist is covered in overlapping Tiffany charm bracelets that tinkle together as she hands Allison a joint. So that, that's what happens in the first pages. In terms of notes, I found there was a bit of repetition, especially in the beginning. For example, paragraph two, there's referring and referring twice. And I just don't think that's necessary. And then paragraph three, there's one sentence starts with nobody and the other sentence starts with everyone. So I think that elevating the writing on the line level here might, might, be, might do the story a lot of good. I also don't recommend starting a story with dialogue just because... You know, the difference between a book and a movie is a narrative voice. Like, give me the narrative voice. This is a matter of personal taste. I really liked the complexity of the sentiment here. She's talking about how she lives in essentially two different worlds and she straddles these two worlds. And the author it conveys this emotion and the complexity of this emotion, including impressions of her own self, really, really well. So I love that. In terms of like big picture notes, the details are great, right? Like I know how Allison feels about her environment. I know who's there. I know what's happening. I still feel like there's a lot of... Again, appreciate the details, but there's a lot of moving around, a lot of running back and forth, action on a micro level. Um, but where's the tension? I want to have her be impatient for the party from page one. I want the table to have someone who is, I like that she's unfazed. I like that she's cynical, but I want there to be something else, though, that dis that's disrupting her environment a bit more um, so that we do see the tension because the tension is important. I also feel that if if the author wants to include so much description, then it might be best to really lean into very, very specific details. So instead of, you know, referring to someone as the blonde guy with stripes, I don't know, refer to his to the light freckles on his nose or to the chapped lips, like something that's a bit more sharp visual, I'd say, a bit more of a sharp visual. So yeah, those are my notes. Overall, I just wanted more tension. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Tension, tension, tension. Right. Carly, will you go to the next query letter for us? Okay. Levi might be barking, so we might need to switch to Cece, but I will try here. Hold on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, last month, a member of my writing group introduced me to your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. 
I now relish my commute as an opportunity to work through the back episodes, and the tapping typewriter has taken residence as an earworm. I particularly love the books with hook segment, and we be thrilled to receive feedback on my query letter and opening pages of Novel X, my 85,000-word women's fiction debut. When principled Melanie, a teacher crushed by professional and personal crises, uncovers her star pupil's cheating scam, she succumbs to the lure of corruption to save her family. Think Breaking Bad in the genteel setting of an English boarding school, told from the dual POV of teacher and student. In terms of the topic, Novel X is for fans of Girls with Bright Futures by Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman. Tonally, it could sit alongside Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Gifted student Ed is bored and uninspired. When he cashes on pupil pressure and develops a test-taking racket, his new role as a dealer in knowledge gives him the thrill and recognition he craves. Melanie is idealistic, ambitious, and plays everything by the book. Desperate to secure a permanent contract, she strives to raise the profile of the new psychology department and shine in her role as head of Oxbridge and oversees university admissions. When she rumbles the scam, she faces a dilemma. She wants justice, but is reluctant to see Ed's future blighted. She's also terrified of being blamed for lack of control over test admission. When her gambling-addicted brother is threatened by loan sharks and turns to her for cash, Melanie forms an alliance with Ed, and they develop a sophisticated cheating enterprise, exploiting the wealthy to promote the underprivileged. The escalation from school kid caper to international fraud raises the stakes with ultimately tragic consequences. I studied English literature at the University of Cambridge and am currently a teacher. As a sports lover, I appreciate that completing a novel is like running a marathon. I was mad enough to run the Berlin Marathon, having only signed up the day before, but I am not guilty of neglecting my writing training. I have just completed Faber Academy Selective Writing, a novel course, and I'm committed to learning the craft of writing. I have two children and live in Southwest England with my husband and pampered cats. Yours sincerely, Author X. Okay, now, is it just me or am I thinking that signing up for a marathon the day before the marathon is going to make a great book? And that's a book I want to read. All right, Carly, so what was your take on the query letter? Okay, here we go. So the comps felt a little all over the place to me. Um, Breaking Bad, and then we have Girls with Bright Futures, which was one of my client books, which I think is the best comp of all of these comps. Um, And then we have Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. So I'm just thinking these comps are a little all over the place here. And it doesn't really help me understand where we are. I also, we're missing a, a UK comp where we don't have any London comps here. And this feels, you know, like a very UK English book, right? Because you're saying we're, we're set at an English boarding school. So I think we're missing a UK comp here or some sort of European boarding school comp because that's where this is set. So I'm just, I don't know, this is like American comps, British book, and we're just kind of bouncing around here. And I'm not really getting like a very clear, narrow understanding of exactly what this book is. I thought that this middle paragraph felt a little bit chaotic. It came off a little bit as synopsis even though it's extremely interesting. I, I just felt like at times we were just like burying the hook a little bit. So I would just try to like bring out the hook a little bit more, try to tone down the synopsis language a little bit. Um, and I think this could be really strong. And for the author bio paragraph, this also felt a little bit wordy to me. I, I It borderlines on apologetic and I don't like apologetic author bios because you don't have anything to apologize for. <laughs> You're pitching your first book. Awesome. Good for you. You wrote it. It's great. Awesome. So this whole like, you know, I'm committed to my craft. That's great. I assume you're committed to your craft if you wrote a book and you're and you're querying me. So I would just dial back the apologetic tone a little bit and just kind of reinforce a bit more of a 
more confident author bio. But overall, this is very interesting. I think I just want to be a little bit more clear about exactly who this is for. And I think comps and then dialing down the synopsis language will help a lot. Great, Carly. Thanks. All right. Will you give us an overview of those opening pages? So we start in Ed's point of view, because we do know from the pitch that we're going to be going back and forth with our dual POVs. So, but we don't have a timestamp here. So just letting us know, we're starting with Ed, the teen boy character. So we start with a moment where we are, um, this is British language that I'm going to use. So they are in the A&E, which is the emergency room. So they're in the A&E kind of him and another kid, something happened to each of them. And they have a teacher because they're at a boarding school. There was a teacher that had to come with them today to get them looked at by a doctor. And their teacher is talking to the receptionist, trying to get them in to see the doctor. And the receptionist is telling them that they can't go in and they don't have an appointment and it's not going to work. And this teacher is like trying to get them in for this appointment. And and the two teen boy characters are just kind of sitting beside uh, each other, just chatting a little bit disappointed that they can't have their cell phones, basically. (laughs) And they're trying to figure out how to entertain themselves. So that is our, our opening scene. And what was your take on those opening pages? I I really liked the the power play of this opening of these opening pages. I thought it was really interesting because right away when you think boarding school, you think potentially snobby people, right? <laughs> you think people with a lot of money, and so. And also the teachers that work at boarding school aren't rich, right? And the, t- the kids are way more rich than the teachers. So I just love this really interesting power play. And so this teacher is used to being the boss of these boys, but they're also out of the school setting, which is also very interesting. So she's not in her, her position of power that she's normally in at the school. And then she's trying to argue with this receptionist about trying to get these boys in for an appointment. And I just thought it was so interesting because I'm like, is she going to try to say like, these are very important boys and you know they need an appointment, but she didn't do that. And the receptionist is basically like also in a position not really of power in a sense, but also in a position of power because she gets to tell people to fuck off. Your appointment isn't right now. <laughs> like get to the back of the line. But she's also being like really nice. Like, please, you know, leave and go find another appointment. So I just love the power play here. Like I just thought we had so many really subtle moments of who's in charge and when are they in charge and how are they in charge? And the boys, um, because they are also in a position of power coming from families of wealth, like that also has a has a moment, but all very subtle, very, very subtle. And even though they really want their cell phones, they're not like demanding their cell phones and being assholes about it. So I just thought it was just very clever and very subtle kind of analysis of class there, which I really liked. Again, I mentioned this in my little overview, but we need timestamps. If you're having multi-POV, I need to know who is speaking at any given time. And not because it's not obvious, but when you are, you're thinking about a reader really tired in the evening, and they're picking up a book and they're like, where did I leave off on this book? And then they, they just want to know who's speaking, right? So just try to be really, really clear with us in terms of who is speaking at any given time. But I, I really thought the, the writing here was very strong. The only thing that I want to know a little bit more about is there was a mention of one of the boys um, has only been at school for three weeks. And I wanted to know, is it midterm or did he start at the beginning of the year? And that was three weeks ago, or was he in addition later on? Has he been looking forward all of his life to going to boarding school or did something happen in his life and he got sent to boarding school? So I wanted to know a little bit about why he'd only been there for three weeks, but overall, it's really strong. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, anything to add to that? Just that exploring power is the most important part of building tension. Power play, power struggle, power corrupts, thirst for power, power imbalance. I don't know how power plays a role in your story, but it does because it plays a role in everything in life. And so this is excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm also very fascinated by people who generally don't have power and then get put in a position of power, either as like the receptionist 
or as the maitre d' at a restaurant or whatever. Um, and then how they choose to to use that power, I always find incredibly fascinating. So, so that intrigued me as well. All right, Cece, do you want to read the last query letter for us? Dear Cecilia, Carly, and Bianca, thank you for this opportunity to hear your thoughts regarding my query and opening pages. I only recently discovered your podcast and love the book and hook section very much. I am excited to have you dissect mine. After the proposal to his girlfriend ended in a heartbeat rather than wedding bells, Chad Gilligan, a half-Nepali romance author, is at the precipice of losing his successful career. He can't bring himself to squeeze out another word, especially about love, which is terrible timing considering there's a deadline looming overhead, like a guillotine, and his agent is ready to drop the blade. Desperate for inspiration, Chad takes his agent slash friend's advice. Go out there and find a pretty girl to fall in love with a little too far. He befriends a fiery young homeless woman and takes her in, hoping in her story lies one he can mine. When June inspires what may be the best story of his career, with the two of them in the lead roles, Chad must grapple with his growing feelings for his new flatmate. Field nosy questions from his twin sister and mum, suddenly all up in his business, and nervously pen the one story that could ruin everything if June learns the truth. Their blossoming romance is fodder for a tell-all story. At 95,000 words about June, an Asian contemporary romance set in Sydney combines the bumbling main character and hapless humor of Bridget Jones with the band of powerful leading ladies and familial bonds found in Dial A for Aunties. It will appeal to readers who enjoyed Beatreet. The previous version of the manuscript won a Wadi Award in Romance in 2020, amassing over 900,000 reads. I'm a Nepali immigrant living in Australia who decided a science degree wasn't torture enough. So now I'm a high school teacher. I'm also a Wattpad star and a We Screenplay Diverse Voices 2021 semifinalist. Currently, I may or may not be nose deep in a slightly telling semi-autobiographical women's fiction imbued with magical realism, which has me cringing and cackling at the same time. Thank you for your time. Please let me know if you have any questions. Sincerely, Eva. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Okay, what was your take on that? Okay, it's not a big deal that you called the segment books, book and hook because it's fine. But like it is books with hooks, like books with hooks, people. Hashtag books with hooks, just saying. I recommend following book hook cook, which is something Carly taught me, which is, you know, start the first paragraph with title, word count, comps, genre. Essentially, I'm saying move paragraph five to the top. I just think it's it, it's better. It's a personal taste, but I feel like it, it you should do that. In terms of the plot, plot paragraphs, right, which is the thing I always focus on the most. One thing I love It's the, you reversed gender stereotypes and expectations, right? Like it's a guy who's a romance author. It's a guy who had his heart broken. It's a guy who's like, can't write anymore. So, so I do love that part very much. A part that I'm a little concerned about, and obviously it's possible that it's just the framing in the query letter, possible that this is not a problem on the pages. I don't know because I haven't gone that far. It's the line that he said that he'd be friends of fiery young homeless woman. I mean, first of all, sensitivity notes is something I learned not too long ago. Um, we should be saying unhoused resident or person experiencing homelessness. This isn't me calling out anyone because I'm learning new things every day, just, you know, sharing. But more importantly, I feel like this can get really creepy really fast. Like, so he takes someone in, someone who's like unhoused, and then is, 
are they sleeping together? Like, I don't know. This this sounds almost like assault, you know? Like, like I don't know what the framing actually is in the story because all we have are five pages. But I would, like, really watch out for this line because if that's not what happens, that that's what people might think. And I got, I felt, like, really, really creeped out when I read that. So, Obviously, maybe just just maybe just me, maybe just my perspective, but it scared me a little. Also, is it intentional that his agent is kind of really mean? You know, like this is something that we'll talk about when we get to the pages. Um, and maybe it is. I don't know. I do want to say that Dial A for Aunties is my all time favorite rom-com. It is the rom-com that ruined me for all other rom-coms. So amazing. But I wouldn't use the, the Bridget Jones as, as, as a comp because I don't, I don't get it. I feel like, you know, dial A for aunties if you're going to have that familial, like family being a part of your love life, essentially, right? Like, like meddling. And, and beach read, it makes sense. And then the, as the very last thing, um, lovely Eva person, why, why are you doing this to me? Like there's this line that reads, the previous version won an award. So this has been published. Is this, is this what you're telling me? Because like a previous version of this story. So it's like, you know, the story has been published. If so, why are you doing this to us? Like I was excited that maybe there was a story here and now it's been published. So, so I get it. Like, congratulations. Very happy for you. Like legitimately, I know I don't sound happy, but I promise I am. But, but as agents, we're looking for unpublished stuff. So, oh, and I do love the, the last paragraph, the last paragraph about the author. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Colleen, what was your take? I just wanted to add a couple notes on the, on the Wattie Award thing. So I'm, I think, and I'm not really in the Wattpad world too much, but I think this is one of the Wattpad awards. And so I'm thinking this is, and they say they're like a Wattpad star, right? And so I've actually chatted with the Wattpad people a little bit, and I've talked with some editors about what the Wattpad universe means in traditional publishing, because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners um, that that are active on Wattpad. And so it's interesting because in the past, I have felt like CC, right? Like it's available. It's up online. If you make something available, you're publishing it, right? Therefore, ipso facto, it's a book. It's out there and, and people can read it. Why do they want to pay money for something they can get for free? But I actually was talking with somebody at the over at Wattpad and they were saying they're actually, if, if they really, if somebody really is a Wattpad star, and I don't know the metrics and numbers of like what makes somebody a star, but if they really are a Wattpad star, it's actually um, been working out lately for them to leave the material up because then they can, if they take all that down, then it's like they're just like their platforms disappearing, right? And then they can leverage that into sales because fa- true fans will then therefore go buy copies. Obviously, this person has 900,000 reads. We're not going to get a million sales, right? We're not, we're not saying it's, you know, tit for tat, but we are saying that we might get some people moving over to actually buy the book. So that is the word on the street, just letting everybody know um, that you don't have to pull your stuff down off of Wattpad if you are going to query it. It is a legitimate platform, of course, you know, and, uh, and but there isn't really a clear understanding in the business of, of what that means. So there are, the, there are some muddy waters still, for sure, but, but just letting you guys know the update on Wattpad. And just on that, I know that Terry Fallis in Canada was recording his own books in audiobooks and he was serializing them and he was making them available for free. Um, and this didn't affect his audiobook sales in any way as well. So it's really interesting the way people are exploring these kinds of platforms. Okay, Cece, will you give us an overview of those pages? Love knowing all this stuff, all this Wattpad stuff. I'm learning. Okay. So chapter one, Chandra sounds like Sandra. It's a great title. Come on, please take a moment to recognize what an awesome title. So we have Chad, the protagonist, in a cafe talking to his agent. That's Terry. 
And through dialogue, we it's established that Chad has writer's block, which is a problem since he's on a one book a year contract. It's also established that Chad was recently rejected by his girlfriend who refused his marriage proposal, which is the reason he can't write, the reason for his writer's block. And then Terry says she has an idea about how to get him out of the funk and then the pages end. So that's what happens. In terms of my thoughts. So maybe it's a matter of personal taste, but I thought this was very expositional. If you attended the Writing the Perfect First Five Pages webinar that Carly and I offered, one thing that we really tried to convey is that your job is not to explain. Your job is to entertain. So many storytellers have this impulse that it's like, okay, so I'm going to have Terry and Chad talking. So I have to explain how they got here. You know, how they got here is essential because or else the reader won't be able to follow the dialogue. I personally feel it's the exact opposite. I do not want to, you to explain how you got there. How you got there is totally irrelevant. You're there. Where are you going? Where are you going is the question that the reader should be thinking about and that the storyteller should be thinking about. So like I said, like as I was summarizing these pages, like it was established that he has writer's block. It was established that his girlfriend rejected his proposal. It's established that he's on a contract. A lot of things are established, but there's not a lot of, you know, propelling the story forward. It's the dialogue is super expositional and it's really well written in terms of being quirky and funny. But I don't quite think that it's doing the job that it should be doing, which is to make me curious about what's going to happen next, which is something that we refer to as the story forward rule. Take a moment to compare this to Beach Read. You know, in Beach Read, and, and, and in the beginning of Beach Read, there's a lot of telling. She does break that rule, but she breaks it well, and so it works. But in the beginning of Beach Read, what's happening isn't the writer's block. What's happening is that she's, you know, arriving at this beach house that she didn't even know existed that her dad, who just passed away, apparently had, and he had a secret life. And she's dealing with that. And the writer's block is also a part of that. This feels like it's just, a, you know, we're at a cafe discussing the writer's block. So it's just, it's too monothematic. In terms of smaller notes, this agent is a horrible person. Like, like a horrible person, like super mean, super inappropriate, saying incredibly unprofessional things. Things like you don't have sex for a bit and your top brain stops working. Go bang somebody and get her out of your system. Like really creepy, inappropriate things. And again, maybe this is the author's intention. That's cool. It's your world. But I was like, huh, I don't like this agent. Also, what is an agent hyphen editor? Like, I don't get that. Like that was confusing for me. This is this is what this agent is, agent hyphen editor. And I don't, I don't understand. And then also this whole contract thing that they're on. So he has to deliver a book, right? By December. And it's May. Like that's not believable. He has over six months to write a book. I'm not saying it's possible. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work. But if he's a seasoned romance novelist and he's in a one book a year situation, then there's no reason for the agent to be panicking, right? So what I think that you should do is have the deadline already have passed and this be the extension. If this is the extension, then there's a lot more tension. So yeah, like overall, I, I think that we're spending a lot of time establishing things and catching things up. And, you know, maybe it's my taste, but I feel like it's a little bit expositional. I do like the inversion of the gender roles, like the stereotypes. Uh, I do. I do really, really, really like that. But yeah, so that's that. Those are my thoughts. Cece, thank you. Carly, was there anything you wanted to add? Um, the only thing I wanted to add was just to um, echo Cece about the power play role between our male character and the houseless resident because I am definitely definitely creeped out by that and I don't know how intentional it is right is that a choice are we supposed to feel icky about that again just echoing that it borderlines on icky all 
right, that's it for today's Box with Hook segment. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder about the virtual retreat we've got coming up at the end of January, the 29th and the 30th of January. We have the most amazing lineup, including New York Times bestselling author Britt Bennett. We have Lisa Cron, Courtney Marm, Valerie Francis, 
Jessica Brody and editor extraordinaire Sally Kim, as well as myself, Cece and Carly, who will be presenting. There'll be tons of prizes given out. There are discounts for writing software that you'll want to be taking advantage of. So if you'd like to book for that, go to my website at biancamaray.com and look under the courses and retreats tab. Just a reminder that if you support us on Kofi, that's K-O-F-I, you will have access to additional exclusive content. Now we normally post the content on Thursday mornings. You will need to create a proper Kofi account, not check out as a guest. And once you register, you will have access to the following Thursday's content going forward. And finally, We've had a lot of new listeners reach out to ask about the writing groups that I did during the course of this year. The writing group matchups are things that I only do once or twice a year. So if you can't wait until the middle of next year for the next one, please tweet me or tweet the shit no one tells you about writing using the hashtag writing group matchup. And then it's the acronym for the podcast, which is not very pretty, people. It's T-Snot-Your. So it's writing group matchup, T-Snot-Your, telling us what your time zone and your genre is. And that's a wonderful way for you to search that hashtag to find other writers who are looking for critique partners or writing group matchups in the meantime. Today, we're joined by two guests. The first is Wayne Ng, who was born in downtown Toronto to Chinese immigrants who fed him a steady diet of bitter melons and kung fu movies. Ng works as a school social worker in Ottawa, but lives to write, travel, eat and play, preferably all at the same time. He's an award-winning short story and travel writer who continues to push his boundaries from the Arctic to the Antarctic, blogging and photographing along the way at wayneingwrites.com. Wayne's first novel, Finding the Way, was released in 2018. He has also completed his third novel, A Contemporary Family Drama. Our second guest, Lindsay Zier-Vogel, is a Toronto-based writer, art educator, and the creator of internationally acclaimed Love Lettering Project. After studying contemporary dance, she received her MA in creative writing from the University of Toronto. Her writing has been widely published in Canada and the UK. As the creator of the Love Lettering Project, Lindsay has asked people all over the world to write love letters to their communities and hide them for strangers to find, spreading place-based love. Lindsay also writes children's books. Because of the love lettering project, CBC Radio has deemed Lindsay a national treasure. Lindsay and Wayne, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you both joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Wayne and I were saying that we've been chatting forever on social media. Wayne was an early listener and supporter of the podcast. So it's so awesome to finally be looking at him now on screen because we do this over Zoom and we get to see each other. So that's always lovely. Now, Lindsay and Wayne today are joining us to discuss something super, super interesting. And it's something that we've had questions about on the podcast and we haven't been able to do a deep dive into it. So I'm really excited that we're able to do that today. And that is epistolary fiction. It's writing in letters or even kind of diary entries as, you know, that they considered epistolary in, in a form as well. It's a very specialized way of writing. Done well, it can add so much nuance. It can really make a story come alive. And I think uh, the last time we spoke about it on the podcast was with Anne Ma who um, was talking about, 
you know, her, her book that took place in France, and it was kind of a dual timeline. So the past and the present and how these diary entries and letters served to bring the two stories together. So let's begin. Lindsay, I'll, I'll actually start with you. Could you give us a bit of an overview of, of what you see epistolary fiction as being and how you applied it in your own book that recently launched? Um, it came out in September. It's called Letters to Amelia. So I feel like there's something... Uh really powerful about letters. I also run a love lettering project where I get people to write love letters to their community. So letters are very important to me. I love, I think done well, and I think it has to be done well in books. Um, they can afford the reader that intimacy that anyone who receives a letter can get. And I think that, you know, reading is an intimate act unto itself, but then it sort of gets another extra level when you're reading a letter that was designed generally for one person often. Uh, and that immediacy and that intimacy is really powerful. In my book, I there are sort of two sets of letters. One is letters uh, written from Amelia Earhart to her presumed lover, Jean Vidal, uh, that my character finds. And the other letters, my character Grace writes to Amelia Earhart. So there's sort of these two narratives through letters uh, that sort of are going throughout the book. And again, that kind of ties the past and the present because, you know, Amelia Earhart's letters will be in the past and the present day letters. And again, a wonderful way to stitch together two kind of separate stories, one happening in the past, one happening in the present, and to show how the two of them complement each other and, and come together. So, so I really love that. The epistolary novels that I think of when I think of that is the literary Guernsey Potato Peel Society. I probably yeah. completely stuffed up that title because I get it <laughs> wrong every time. Um, and then I'm thinking of Letters to Alice which, um, who was that author? She wrote it to her niece who was studying, I think, Jane Austen at the time, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Wayne, let's talk about your book. How, yours is a different genre, right? It's middle grade fiction. Right. So tell us a bit about Letters from Johnny. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is classified as middle grade. I didn't write it for them. I wrote it for old fogies like me because, the, you know, the references to the 1970s culture. I tried to recreate the zeitgeist that probably meant nothing to the middle grade readers. But lo and behold, 55% of young adult books are consumed by adults, right? And 2020 had a fantastic year for YA. It, it doubled in Canada across all formats. So if you write YA, the audience is huge. It's not just young readers. But Letters from Johnny speaks to my childhood because it's based on biographical elements of growing up in a very tumultuous period in Canadian history. You know, Canada's first 9-11 moment, the FLQ crisis, and the protagonist is growing up with a murder around him. Uh, his neighbor bullies him. So his life is falling apart. So for me to have written that in a conventional structure or even a first person would have felt like I was creating an artificial barrier between me and the reader. And that just didn't sit well with me. So I would classify letters from Johnny in its purest form, uh, epistolary, in that it's all letters. And along, if there's a spectrum of epistolary, you've got works like mine, uh, Bridget Jones' Diary, White Tiger, we need to talk about Kevin. And then you've got your hybrids, which are like like Lindsay's, which uses strategic moments and times in her novel to throw in 
handwritten letters. You've got things like um, Andy Weir's The Martian, who starts off with 50 video logs, right, before he gets into almost all dialogue. Then you've got things like Dracula, who really, the entire novel is told in four POVs through a dossier of telegraphs, newspaper clippings, ship's reports. It's like, so the gamut and the genre is really quite varied and diverse. So I know a lot of people think, oh, who wants to read letters? Well, it's, it's a heck of a lot more than that. And I'm seeing now from my creative writing students, which I'm loving, because I love seeing people pushing the boundaries and experimenting. I'm seeing them starting to write novels in ways that include one chapter is a string of text messages, and the next is letters backwards right. and forwards between a cancer patient and their specialist. And the next is a series of post-it notes that a husband and wife who are, keep passing each other, their lives are so busy that they're leaving for each other. So, Lindsay, do you agree that that also constitutes a kind of a epistolary novel, or do you feel like it just has to be straight out letters? I feel like, I mean, all of our, that, to me, the, it's the, it's the quality of that intimacy, that intimate communication. So whether it's a text message, whether it's a post-it note, whether it's, uh, you know, letters back and forth, emails, like the, the Sally Rooney uh, book is, has, you know, these really long sort of letter style emails. Night Bitch also has a bunch of uh, emails as well. And I feel like, of course, I, to me, they, they absolutely count. I don't think that you have to necessarily have like, you know, pen on paper to, to create a letter. I do think that the tone and quality of the the form changes the tone and quality of the communication. Like what, what I communicate in a text message is going to be different than what I communicate in a handwritten letter is going to be different than what I write on a post-it note. So I feel like there's so many different ways to communicate in that very intimate one-on-one sort of way that is written. But I feel like for me, anyways, with epistolary fiction, it can take on sort of all of those different things, as long as they're true mm-hmm. to the form. You know, when, like when I'm reading like emails in a book and they're, you know, these like long, epic, you know, sweeping, I think, do people really write emails like that? Like maybe when emails first started, but I don't feel like that's how they're written now. You know, same with text messages. I feel like you have to sort of change the voice when when you're sort of switching from different um, modes. You see, I'm the idiot who writes those long, sweeping text messages. <laughs> <laughs> you and my you I, and my dad. <laughs> I, I think your dad and I would get along really well. I cannot bring myself to write these contractions and stuff in uh, in text messages. In fact, sometimes I will write a text message on my email. Uh, on my laptop, email it to myself on my phone, and then copy and paste it into the text. So, and it's, I kind of feel like the people who get my text messages are like Ross from Friends when Rachel writes him that long letter and he goes, What? It was mm-hmm. however many, 18 pages front and back. Yeah. So, and, and certainly diary entries, you know, because when you write Dear Diary, you are writing kind of a letter to your diary or to your future self or to your children or whatever the case may be. So it's not necessarily a person per se, but I think writing to imaginary people helps as well. Wayne, what are your thoughts on how this this form suits today's social media sort of confessional style of communicating? Yeah, it's a really good question. And just to follow up on what Lindsay said about Sally Rooney, she and other writers have made observations that despite the assumption that technological advances have given us new and improved forms of communication, they're actually haunted by old epistolary forms, namely the letter and the diary, both of which have strong historical relationships with privacy, secrecy, intimacy, as well as anonymity and deception. Because as, as Lindsay said, letter writing, after all, carries great risk because it, it renders the reader and the writer vulnerable. And 
what is epistolary forms but intimate confessional and emotional tones that in fact strip away or play with personal boundaries and if you accept that then you can see that this is really a long-form version of how much of social media already operates and if you take that a step further you can see how in ya in particular where telling all and revealing all are so common the genre appears particularly ready and receptive to this you know and i can use lots of examples like the illuminate files which is told in textbooks, interview transcripts, uh, psych reports, emails, uh, text messages. Brad Pitt's picked that up, by the way, uh, his production company. Uh, All the Boys That I Loved, which was in diary entries. Uh, Dear Martin, which are letters to Martin Luther King. Love Letters to, De- to the Dead, which are letters to uh, people who died tragically, such as Amelia Earhart, Kurt Cobain, Dear Rachel Maddow. So these are strong epistolary forms for YA, but are widely consumed by adult audiences. To, and they, they incorporate a, a number of different uh, units of exposition, if you will. And just two things on that. One, you spoke about the privacy. And I must be honest, that's, I'm, I'm a huge control freak, um, type A Capricorn. And for me, the thought of my letters to whoever I've sent them to, surviving after my death and being read by whomever gives me chest pain. Um, because <laughs> if I wanted the whole bloody world to read them, I would have directed it to yeah. the whole bloody world. And I know that when you die, yeah. you know, it's it's fair game. Anyone can read it. But like, it really stresses me out. Lindsay? So uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, I ran into an old friend from like, we were friends sort of in grades seven, eight, nine kind of era. And she, we hadn't seen each other in years. Uh, she's writer, Aaron Brubaker and playwright uh and director sorry and she gave me a pile of letters that I had written to her from 1992 to 1995 ish and it was so strange because all of a sudden I was reading words that were not meant for me I had written them to somebody else so again there was an audience there so it, it was it was completely surreal I don't remember writing most of them I don't remember most of the like in jokes I mean I was you know 12 13 14 like I was writing these jokes that you know and it was all coded you know every crush we had had a separate code name and I had to text her and say like who who's Cal like who who are these people again of course she remembered (laughs) because she was amazing but it was really strange to all of a sudden get like to be the audience when I was not supposed to be the audience uh and my grandmother and when she died I got a binder of every letter I had ever written to her so I had this record of myself again they weren't diary entries they weren't intended for me and yet I have these repositories of my words about myself and it's so surreal it is a it is a really so I was thinking about you know in my book um the letters that Amelia Earhart wrote to her Jean Vidal her lover then go public and my character feels very unsettled about that feeling and I understand that feeling because when they're not intended for a larger public or even for you know me and I wrote them it's very strange it's a really uh bizarre experience yeah I feel like for the voyeurists among us it's awesome because you get to very voyeuristically get an inside view into someone's life and like with diaries uh I I uh, journals I actually threw away I destroyed some of my earlier journals from when I was younger because one they made me cringe 
Two, I was just like, oh my God, I don't want anyone to ever see this. And who knows whose hands it's going to end up in. I don't have children. I have nieces and nephews and godchildren who would torment me by making sure that these things were widely distributed. But letters, you know, that you've sent out and that you've long forgotten what you've said. And that may not be something you still believe. And people can take them hugely out of context because letters happen so much in shorthand. So letters between lovers refer to shorthand things that, you know, other people are, are not really going to understand. Wayne? Yeah, um, I loved your book, Lindsay. And and having read those letters, it's not as though they were scandalous. Well, okay, I guess they were because they were to a lover or from a lover. But there wasn't anything salacious about it. But it was, it was just movingly intimate and private. And you knew you were violating somebody's boundary. And there was a voyeuristic quality to that, which made the letters in themselves engrossing. But I'm reminded of a philosophy class that I took uh, decades ago, where the prof asked us, if you could commit a moral transgression or a serious crime and get away with it, you've probably been asked this before, what would you do? And most people picked, you know, robbing a bank, sleeping with their best friend's girl or that kind of thing. It all involved sex or money. Then one person said, I want to read everybody's mail and diary. You should have just seen the class just like explode. They, they thought that person had crossed the line. They felt such a violation. How could you, how, how would you dare, you know, reading my private thoughts or looking through my mail? Because there's an expectation that, you know, our private, intimate, personal thoughts and feelings should remain that way and should only be given or shared to those that we choose. So, yeah, I mean, there was that. Sorry, there was um, with that good, bad art friend article and when all the group text messages were subpoenaed, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone on a group text message all of a sudden was like, oh, and because my, again, my we, entire writing group was like, we need to delete our whole thread of everything we've ever said. We must burn it. We burn it down. And again, it's that yeah. thing where, you know, when I send a text message, I do not assume that anyone else is going to read these. Right. However, there is no guarantee that, I mean, I'm, I, I hope my text messages are never subpoenaed, but, you know, there is no privacy in the same way. You know, I feel like a letter these days is, you know, tuck it in an envelope, lick it shut. Like that is maybe the most private we get these days. Yeah. Well, I've led us far down the wrong path. I'm sorry. Let me rein us back in. Something that Wayne said about how YA is having so many of these letters. I wonder if that's like a kind of nostalgia or, or that it's so retro because children these days grow up with, they hardly ever write things in terms of letters and things like that. I have had nieces and nephews from when they're very young, they text message me or they WhatsApp me or they um, email me or they talk to me on social media. So I've never received a letter from one of my nieces and nephews, although I, at the same as as, as a child, sent many letters to aunts and uncles and, and people like that. So perhaps that's that kind of fascination there for this thing that they themselves it's, have an experience. Yeah, I, I think my wife and my nephew have had a back and forth letter writing thing going on since the pandemic, inspired by the pandemic, because they needed to find ways to reduce the isolation, to connect somehow. They might be anomalies. I don't know. But, you know, I, I've, I've been writing with people 
Um, I met I met somebody in Australia in the eighties. We're still in, we're still doing that, but I understand what you're saying. It seems to be a dying art, you know. In the Ontario curriculum, cursive writing is not required to be taught. And once they update the language curriculum, they're probably going to talk about standardizing digital formats, not cursive writing. You know, having said that, there are teachers who are very much committed to teaching kids to write because they understand that those who write, who physically write, not pecking at a keyboard and pounding out an email, have better retention, have better focus, have their memories enhanced. There's all sorts of neurological connections and functions going on in the brain that happen when you're actually using your hands yeah. and exercising a number of mechanical muscles. Yeah, 100%. Well, we've got 10 minutes left. And so what I want to focus on there is advice that you have for writers out there who are using this form or who are incorporating letters and diary entries. For me, with my debut novel, I, um, my one character, Beauty, all of her initial chapters started off as letters letters that she was writing to her daughter. And I eventually scrapped that because I felt that I was falling too much into telling or expository territory because the challenge with the letter. When you sit down to write a letter and you're telling someone your news, everything has already happened. And so you are just telling somebody what happened and you're telling it through this lens of time passing. And so we are constantly telling novelists, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. Or if you're going to tell, you know, have it like 30%, but showing 70%. So Lindsay, what is your advice for our listeners in terms of how to write in this way, but not have it be pure exposition? It's so hard. I'm going to lead with that. It is so hard. My my novel started as all letters. Uh, it was going to be, and then I realized what you were just saying, the limitations of writing retrospectively through a very specific lens. I felt like I couldn't get um, the sort of three-dimensional aspect of my character. It, it, it just, it didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't manage that. Uh, so then I started doing the sort of letters and then um, prose, letters, prose, letters, prose. So it sort of alternates throughout. Uh, that was a suggestion from a writing friend of mine, which was so helpful. I also found that, again, this was not my idea. None of the good ideas are mine. Another woman that I work with uh, writing, Terry Vlasopoulos, she suggested that I write the prose sections in third person so that the letters in first person really are, like the tone is very different. And that also made a really big difference to let the letters sort of exist on their own in a much more organic way. Because I used the voice of a uh, famous person, I found that I did a lot of reading about, you know, Amelia Earhart's writing. She wrote for Cosmo magazine. She wrote books uh, and none of that helped. (laughs) It was all written in a very artificial, very over-edited tone is what I, I I didn't feel like I found her voice. And it took me finding her letters and reading her letters to her mom that really unlocked her voice. So I think that, you know, if you're working in the voice of a character or a person that already exists, finding, really digging around to find where their authentic voice is is really helpful when building out when building up you know letters of your own yeah 100 percent. and like you say tone if i'm writing a business email to you know my boss it's going to be have a very different tone to if i'm writing to to my best friend and you certainly it'll be different if you're writing to a lover so you really want to nail that it's actually awesome to see amelia Earhart influencing so many great books that have come out this year i'm sure you've read um, maggie shipstead's great circle and while that yeah. was not Amelia Earhart, it was certainly inspired by her. Yes, Lindsay? Amelia Earhart, I think, was on page six. I remember, like, opening up the page and I was like, there's my girl! And I kept reading. She's so mentioned, yeah. yeah. But And even though she's mentioned, you just know that the, the main character is really 
very much based on her, you know, <laughs> so um, influenced by her, which was awesome. Wayne, what advice do you have for our listeners that you can add to what? what oh, geez. Uh, I think Lindsay stole my best lines, but, you know, I, I think epistolary writing t- gets a bit of a bum rap. To me, it's like tofu. You would think at first, meh, bland. How can you how can you stomach that? I mean, my wife just couldn't stand it. But really, the right tofu with the right marinade, cooked to perfection, properly executed, it absorbs all the goodness around it because it's about execution, right? You know, a traditional epistolary can still give us all the benefits of first-person narrator. You can have limitations on perspective. You can allow characters to make mistakes. You can, you can play with reliability. You can still build in dramatic irony. You have multiple points of view. I, I think where it, where it really works for me in the novels that I really enjoyed with that form is when they're written in real time and in present tense. Right. I mean, yes, a lot of the action takes place off stage, you know, and it's already happened. But it doesn't mean the writer at that moment isn't feeling and living tension, isn't feeling, you know, the sense of urgency. And and the thing about YA, and I keep going back to YA, really, truly successful and I think well-written novels are about voice. It isn't just the medium. It isn't just the unit of expression. Is Can you believe that this is a 16-year-old going through this? Have you captured the right tone? Is it the right voice? Does it feel authentic? But it isn't just about the letters or, or the emails or whatever it is. It's about capturing the tone. Yeah, and uh, I'll take your question now, Lindsay. Something that I think about that I think effective epistolary novels do is they incorporate something like Lisa Cron's third rail. So she speaks about when ever you write a scene, a scene has to move through various emotions, various, like she, she, she has it as a grid and it moves in a Z pattern, a Z pattern. As the character, you know, you tell the, the reader what happens, you need to tell the reader why it matters, what the repercussions right. of it are, and how it leads to the next scene, right? And if a scene doesn't do that, if it doesn't move through that natural progression, a scene falls flat. And we're like, why did we read this? What was the point? And I feel like if you can make your letters or diary entries follow that same kind of third rail journey, I think that elevates it. What were you going to say, Lindsay? I was going to say another suggestion uh, that really helped me was also writing them by hand, not all of them. Um, but there is something that's quite different about like if, if you're actually writing epistolary fiction, like the handwritten letters, um, there's something really different. I think that my brain works differently when I'm writing by hand. I can get into something a little because I'm not, you know, nervous that someone's going to read it immediately and respond immediately. Like there, I know that there's going to be this sort of time between when I send the letter and when I receive it back. So I feel like, you know, if you're really going to go there, like try writing them, try writing them to even just like a bunch of people in your life just to get used to your own letter writing voice because I think that that you know once you sort of develop that it's it's a lot easier to develop it within a character yeah excellent advice and what do you feel about putting a scene within a letter so you know that you're writing to someone but you pretty much are making the scene come alive because I feel like if something really cool happens to us during the week and then we're with our friends at a dinner party you know if you're a good storyteller you're not gonna just say oh this happened and you put it in you know one sentence you're gonna be like the weirdest thing happened to me so there I was in the grocery store in the aisle looking at the baked beans when and we kind of build it up into this scene and I feel like if you 
can expand some of those letters into that kind of scene, making it come alive, that certainly goes a long way to to helping it not feel like a whole bunch of telling. What do you think, Wayne? Yeah, I absolutely agree. It, if you write it like that, then the letter sounds more like a conversation. Then you can have dialogue, you can have repartee, you can have back and forth as if as if it was just two people talking. And you're not constrained by thinking that it's a letter. You're just communicating an event, information, you're sharing a moment. And it feels really, really natural. And because there's this myth that because it's letter writing, you're constrained, it's overly structured, it's rigid. It doesn't have to be that. Much of what you can do in a first person, you know, in a traditional structure, I firmly believe you can still do it in an epistolary form with letter writing. Yeah, 100%. You know, like with anything, it's it's kind of pushing the boundaries. It's being experimental. It's doing it right. really, really well. So on the podcast, we always have these tons of rules. People think we're anti-prologue. We're not anti-prologue. We're anti-bad <laughs> prologue. And there's a whole bunch of other things that we anti, you know, it's like uh, letters can be wonderful if you do them well, if you do them in a really interesting way. And, you know, if you incorporate some of this advice, Lindsay and Wayne have given you. Lindsay, what, what did you want to add to that? I just want to say that um, there also has to be a reason for the letters too, right? Like they're like a bigger reason than just, you know, wanting to experiment with the form. And I feel like that took me a while to sort of figure out with my book, like years of having a bunch of letters kicking around and not figuring out like the sort of bigger framework for them. I feel like that's the key, you know, like not just using a form because it's interesting, but using a form because it makes sense for the characters, for the overall story. Like, I feel like, you know, it has to fit into a sort of larger framework. Well, yeah. And also, you know, if you're looking at a dual timeline story, you've got something in the past, you've got something in the present. When you write these kind of stories, it has to make sense for the reader why these are not two separate novels. It has to make sense for the reader why these two stories are interwoven and what themes from the past affect the themes from the present. And these are all things you need to weave in. And in the same way, you know, I've said on the podcast before, J.K. Rowling's invisibility cloak, the pensive, all of these amazing magical things she invented because there were limits in her storytelling. She chose to tell the story from a third person limited point of view to Harry with only a handful of scenes in which Harry's not there, but he needed to be privy to information that he would otherwise not be privy to. And so Invisibility Cloak was invented so that Harry could be places and overhear things. The pensive was invented so that Harry could go back into the past and experience the past as if he was right there. So in the same way, if you're going to be using letters, etc., they must, like Lindsay says, be there for a reason to kind of have a conversation between the person in the present day and the past, considering those two characters can never be on the page together. Because if one passes away before the other one's born, they can never be in a scene together, but certainly one character can be holding another character's letter and living vicariously that way. So 100% agree with you there, Lindsay. Before we finish off, Wayne, was there anything else that, that you would like to add in, in terms of advice? Writing this way has opened up doors and created a level of intimacy and a closeness to my characters and to my stories that I didn't think possible. I mean, I've written third person, I've written first person, I'm epistolary with letters now. Um, it's, it's as you say, you have to experiment, you have to try different things, 
not everything I'm going to write is going to be epistolary. It's going to involve letters. In fact, my next two projects aren't. But for the time, for the moment, for that particular project, it worked. So I don't think anybody should hold themselves to a particular form or to a particular structure. Whatever works for you at that moment, I would go with it. And definitely what best serves that particular story. So 100%. Right. 100%. Well, Lindsay and Wayne, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing all that amazing information for our listeners. Again, the books are Letters from Johnny and Letters to Amelia if you are writing this form and you want to see how other people have done it well. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.